Good morning. It's good to see everyone this morning. I want to invite you to open your Bibles to 1 Timothy chapter 3. And we're going to be beginning our time this morning in verses 8 through 13 in a series that I'm calling Flourishing Families. And the reality is that God's Word speaks to what it means for our families to flourish, to thrive, to grow, to be healthy. And so we were looking at some passages throughout God's Word that speak to this. I'm thankful for, for ministries that also come around, uh, like our own age-graded ministries, our preschool ministry, our children's ministry, both of which um, are engaged right now in summer activities, our youth ministry, our adult ministry, senior adult ministry, all of these things to really help families flourish during every season of life. But I'm also thankful for ministries like Crossroads NOLA. Um, and the work that they do to help families flourish, because that's, they're after the same thing. They want to see families flourishing. They want to see children flourishing. And so there's going to be some pictures up on the screen um, here in just a moment that show a camp that you as a church helped host this week. Um, it was called Crossroads NOLA Connection Camp. And you'll see some pictures of folks that are trained in a trust-based relational intervention model, TBRI, for short, of helping the kids, helping the kids be able to, to self-regulate, to be able to learn new skills, to be able to work through um, just everyday things that they face, uh, difficulties, uh, a lack of choices, or things like that, of just giving them a voice, training them, all those things. But you, at no cost to, to these families, opened up your facility to use it. So know that even when you're not here on a Sunday, or, or during the week, and are only here on a Sunday, your facility is being used for kingdom purposes in our city. And so these are some of the exciting things that are happening with Crossroads NOLA, a ministry that we are proud to be able to host, uh, a ministry that you as a church birthed and created and now is thriving and God has given great influence to. Flourishing families, in God's word, are patterned in such a way that his church really is the beneficiary. You see, God has an intention when he calls families to operate in such a way that then the benefit of that is going to be then when we come together collectively as the people of God, this family, which is the everlasting family. You know, that's important to understand that my family, my little nuclear family of Cole and I and our four children, that's not always going to be the case. And you say, well, what do you mean, Chad? You're not going to be a family when you get to heaven? Jesus spoke about this. Jesus talked about that in heaven, we no longer marry or given in marriage and all of those things because that's not a union that's needed any longer. And we should, we should stop for a moment and say, well, why isn't it needed any longer? Why isn't it needed in heaven? Because here on earth, it is reflecting the relationship of Christ and the church. And that's a relationship that will no longer need reflection because you'll be able to experience it fully in heaven, that perfect union of Christ and the church. In other words, we're still kind of a bride waiting for the groom. It's, it's the wedding day, if you will, and we're waiting for that union, that return of Jesus Christ when we will be together with him forever. But for now, we need images we need examples. We need things that point us to and constantly orient us to that eternal relationship of greatest significance, of ultimate significance. It's more important than anything else is our relationship as the bride of Christ to Christ, who alone is the bridegroom, who is the head alone over the church. And so all of these things are pointing in that direction. So is it right then for us to come to something like looking at deacons, 
And that's what we're going to be looking at today, the, the deacon ministry, and to say, this is how we're to pattern our families. Is that me doing gymnastics with the Bible of picking a passage and applying it in a way that really it ought not to be applied? Well, I'll submit to you today that because Paul speaks to pastors and he talks about overseers, we looked at it last week and I called fathers in this church to, to lead your family like a pastor. Do I have any grounds for that? As I speak to you today and I say for your family to flourish, for you as a member of this family to flourish, you have to serve like a deacon. Do I have any grounds for doing that? Well, the answer is yes. Because Paul says that husbands and wives ought to be in relationship and they ought to be leading their children because how can one care for the church if they can't care for their own family, if they can't manage their own family, if they're not faithful in their own marriage relationships, all these things, how will they be faithful in leadership and care for the church? So Paul is making application in this way so it's right for us to set up pastors and deacons to be examples for what it is for our families, our nuclear families to thrive, as well as for the entire body of Christ to thrive. And so I want to invite you to stand this morning, and I just want to read one verse from chapter 3 of 1 Timothy in verse 13. Hear the word of the Lord. For those who have served well as deacons acquire a good standing for themselves and a great boldness in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. Will you pray with me? Father, I pray with that picture of why deacon ministry is so important, that you will orient us as a church family to how you designed your family to thrive and how that same principle is at play in our families when we leave this place. So that there's a pattern that's given, there's a, a way forward, there's a blueprint for how we are to flourish and thrive as your people. So Lord, please speak from your word today. Strengthen this church for your glory among all nations and New Orleans. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You can be seated. Families thrive when they serve like a deacon. Families thrive when they serve like a deacon. That speaks to your family. You say, well, Chad, I'm not married. I'm a single adult or I'm a teenager or, or whatever. So like I, this sermon series doesn't seem to apply to me. If you call yourself a Christian, you're here today professing faith in Jesus Christ. You have been brought into a family, the family of God, where we know God is our father and we know one another in relationship as brother and sister. And so you are, in the truest, most lasting sense, part of a family. And so how is this spiritual family of God, as well as our biological families, when we scatter and we're apart from one another, how do they flourish and thrive? Well, they thrive when they are led by a pastor, including a family pastor, and then they are led and they thrive when families serve like a deacon. I want us to look at three different passages that really put deacon ministry on display in God's Word. And I hope that from each one of these scenes from God's Word, that you will see kind of how you are, you are given by God a template for you to follow as you lead in your family. 
So first of all, what we see in this service of a deacon is that we are first to serve with character. Our character matters. Your character matters. Who you are matters because a deacon wears the character of Christ. In every part of your life, public and private, you are to demonstrate that you are clothed with Jesus. In other words, if you could put on the Jesus costume, if you would, then people ought to look at you and say, man, you look like Jesus. The way that you treat others looks like Jesus. The way that you respond under pressure and in persecution, you look like Jesus. The way that you love the unlovable looks like Jesus. The way that you conduct business looks like Jesus. The way that you uphold truth and grace looks like Jesus. We ought to see Christ in one another. And when we don't, those are the parts of our lives, individually and corporately, that God raises up people in our lives, sometimes uncomfortable people, to say, here's an area to give some attention to. Here's an area where iron on iron begins to sharpen. The sparks sometimes fly when you're sharpening metal. And so God's word speaks to us about the character of Christ here. And he says that character ought to be worn by every deacon. Deacons likewise should be worthy of respect, not hypocritical. This not hypocritical literally means two-faced. Just think about that. You put on one face maybe when you're with others, but then a very different face at home. Let me just speak to maybe parents in the room, moms and dads in the room. Would your kids say that they see the same face here that then they see on Sunday afternoon? You know, it's kind of interesting how pictures, I love, you know, when sometimes you're in the background of a picture um, and, you know, you weren't the main person, but you're, you see yourself in the picture and you're like, look at my face. My, my face says something right there. What does your face say when you're not in the picture? What, what does your face communicate about your love for others when it's not time for the family photo? See, a lot of times our face, we don't realize our resting face position can be one of just anger or, you know, frustration, those sort of looks. But what Christ is speaking to is that the face that we wear is a face that has looked into the very face of God and has been changed. And that change is then worn in public places when you're in the picture and in private places when you're not, when you're in the background. And so may we not be hypocritical. Deacons that are serving in this church do not be hypocritical. We, as a deacon body, went through every one of these callings last year. We looked at every word. We spent time talking about what it means to live in that way. And every time we gather as a deacon body in this church, we read this passage. The very passage I'm reading to you this morning, verses 8 through 13, we read it again to orient us because being a deacon is not about reaching a moment like an interview where you get the job or the title of deacon. It's about a lifestyle. It's a way you live constantly. So we hold this out in front of us to say this is constantly how we are to live, and God's Word continues to refine us. Going through, not drinking a lot of wine. 
I want to stop for a moment and speak to this because we spoke about it last week. Um, I really appreciate it. And I'm just going to like, you know, share a little bit about my week with you. Um, I got a phone call from one of our members and I really, really, really appreciated um, this time with this member because what this member heard me saying last week was that if you don't drink alcohol, then you're a Pharisee. And I just want to communicate from my heart to you that just because I may not have been as clear as I'd hoped to be. And that's one of the, the hard things about pastoring and preaching is that you aim to say it and say it well, but sometimes you miss the mark. And so last week, I think I could have been more clear. And so this week, because of just the sovereignty of God, and, and it comes up exactly again, it's the same phrasing even from the pastors. You know, so you look and you say it's the, it's the same idea at play that when it comes to, to drinking, what I wanted to address and to make clear is that the Bible for the offices of overseer that we would liken to pastor as well as deacon does not prohibit the drinking of alcohol. And one of the things that I've seen as a pastor in many churches, especially Southern Baptist, is literally written down in the rule book that deacons or pastors have to sign that they will never consume alcohol. Um, and, and, and to me, that is where we're adding to the Word of God, and we're, and we're, we're trying, maybe in good, in good faith, to go higher. But the question that was presented to me last week was, what about if you have a personal conviction? In other words, you don't look down on anyone about their drinking or anything like that. What about when you just personally feel like it's not the right decision for you? Is that being a Pharisee? Is that being hypocritical? Is that making your own law or anything like that? And the answer biblically is no. No, not at all. In fact, there is a sordid history for every one of us. We all come from a family. My family, I'll just share a little bit about my past. My grandfather owned his own bar and was a very violent drunk. And so my dad grew up in a home where when my grandfather came home at the end of each day, he would beat my, my dad's siblings. And, and so it's one of those things that it informed how my dad saw alcohol as something really evil. Like it, it brought in this part of his own existence and worldview that he didn't want anything of. So when he became a Christian in his early 20s, he left alcohol behind. And so I grew up in a household where alcohol was not part of the scene. It was in big measure, not because my dad was convinced the Bible taught that it was wrong, but because he had grown up in the home of an alcoholic. And he himself was already on that road of moving toward that. And so that informed then my childhood and the way that I grew up seeing alcohol. Additionally, each one of us have stories here. There may be someone in this room right now that's a recovering alcoholic. And for you, if you heard me say, well, it's okay to drink in moderation, go and have a drink, that could send you down a very dark road back into addiction. And so it would be unwise to drink again. But within the body of Christ, there's going to be a, a myriad of convictions on this issue. Some that say, you know, I've just chosen not to. Maybe you know yourself that you have kind of an addictive personality and you're afraid that if you start, you may not be able to stop. And so just out of wisdom, you stop. But I want you to see that what the text says, and so this isn't even about Chad's personal convictions on whether to drink or not. It's not about whether I say, well, you know, what I've decided, I'm now going to apply to all of you. No, I become a law unto myself when I do that. And that is not what you need. What you and I need is the word of God. And to know that what it calls for, the standards it establishes are perfect. They are perfect. 
They are good. They benefit everyone. And so the perfect standard of the word of God says not drinking a lot of wine. Paul could have said not drinking any wine, but he didn't. And so we have to look and say, we're going to allow the word of God to be sufficient in all measures of life, including this area of drinking. But there's room in the family of God, just like there is in any any given family, for there to be different decisions made about that issue. And we ought not to look down in judgment upon one another about where we land personally on whether to drink or not. Now, let me just say, you say, Chad, you're kind of hanging out here for a while. I know this is a big one. We're, we're, we're part of a Southern Baptist church. And so this is one of those issues that's not often talked about. So I want to be clear on this. What would not be okay is for you to say, well, I have personally landed on the conviction that anyone that drinks is sinning. That would be then where you have gone over into the camp of what, what I would call kind of being a Pharisee, of establishing a rule. You're saying, well, the best way to not drink too much is not to drink at all. And anyone that drinks at all is in sin. That's exactly what the Pharisees did. They made rules around the rules, like kind of imagine the Ten Commandments at the core, and then they surrounded the Ten Commandments with another set of laws and rules. And if you broke any of those rules, you were also sinning because you were getting really close to breaking one of these. And so anytime we do that and we say, so anybody that I look at that's drinking, they're sinning. That's not what the scriptures say. So I hope that I'm being clear I expect more phone calls this week, and that's okay. I, I truly mean that. I, I so appreciate this person that, that, that reached out and had this phone conversation because what can become easy in moments like this is say, well, I'm leaving this church. I'm just gonna, you know, I, I assume I know what the pastor meant, and so I'm gone. But this person even said, I just want you to know I wasn't bad-mouthing you this week. And I really appreciated that because this person gave me the opportunity to have a conversation where we talked for like about 45 minutes and it was such a good and rich conversation. And that's one of your members. That's an exemplar member of this church and how they handled um, um, you know, something that I said that they had concern over. So I just offer that up to you. I, uh, I wanna be transparent and real. I wanna be clear as well. But more than anything, I just wanna lift up the standard of God's word and say, this is the highest that can be achieved. That we can do no better than this. And this is sufficient for what we need to live lives of godliness today in New Orleans and among the nations. Not greedy for money, holding the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. What that doesn't mean is that you never have a question. I so, I'm so grateful for brothers and sisters that have come to me with really good, insightful questions. You know, wondering like, how is this passage about Moses's death in a book that Moses wrote? Like, did he, did he write that part? How did that come to be in there? Questions about the biblical text and how do we get at different things? Those are wonderful questions. So what it's not saying is you can never have any questions. You just have to say, well, I don't ever question anything. I just accept it by faith. That's not what it's driving at, is that we thoughtlessly just accept anything that we've been taught in a Sunday school class or from a pastor, but instead that we're coming to the word and with a clear conscience, in other words, we, we're not like, I don't really believe this stuff, but I'm gonna act like I do. But instead that there's an integrity about where you are right now and the questions that you're asking. So ask those good questions, ask them to your Sunday school teachers, ask them to your pastoral staff and other leaders that you trust and dig into the word of God together. And they must also be tested first. And if they prove blameless, then they can serve as deacons. Wives too, 
must be worthy of respect, not slander, self-control, faithful in everything. Now, this word translated wives here could also just be translated women. And there's some grammatical construction between the way that verse 8 is structured and the way that verse 11 is structured, that it seems that Paul could be speaking to women serving as deacons. Now, we should have no problem with that at all because this is an office that is distinguished from that of overseers. And Paul then consistently throughout the Bible distinguishes these offices and their role within the church as well as applying it to the family. So there really is no biblical odds of that. In fact, when we get to our last point today, we're going to see that there is a female deaconess that is put forward by Paul in Romans chapter 16 as being exemplar, as being worthy of their greatest respect. In, in most of our Bible translations, it just says servant, but it's the very word that's at play here, a diakonai. And so it's, it's a deacon. And so whether she's in the office or not, we can talk about. But what's clear is there were women and men serving the body of Christ. They were exemplar in character and in care. And that's exactly what the body of Christ needs in order to thrive. So we keep going through and we see that deacons are to be the husbands of one wife. In other words, faithfulness in marriage relationships, managing their children in their own households competently, and so that's important to see that just as Paul said earlier of overseers with all dignity, there's to be a competence there. In other words, you're to be leaning into knowing what to do and what is right and beneficial for leading your family. For those who have served well as deacons acquire a good standing for themselves and a great boldness in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. And why is that? Why, does the, why do you arrive at this great boldness in the, face, in the faith? Because as you put on the character of Christ, and as Christ changes you from the inside out, you begin to see and experience that Christ changes you. He changes you, and you want that good change for everyone else. The way that you experience the goodness of the Spirit of God at work in you, changing your character and making you into the man or woman that you're called to be in His Word, you want that for others, not to be legalistic, not to impose a standard on them that is your own, but because you have tasted and seen that the Lord is good and you desire that goodness to be tasted by all. So serve with character. Second, serve with care. I want to invite you to turn with me over to Acts chapter 6. Acts chapter 6, and I want us to look at verses 1 through 7 together. In those days, as the disciples were increasing in number, there arose a complaint by the Hellenistic Jews against the Hebraic Jews that their widows were being overlooked in the daily distribution of bread. The twelve summoned the whole company of the disciples and said, it would not be right for us to give up preaching the word to wait on tables. Brothers and sisters, select from among you seven men of good reputation full of the spirit of wisdom, whom you can appoint in this duty. We will devote ourselves, but we will devote ourselves to prayer and the ministry of the word. This proposal pleased the whole company, so they chose Stephen, a man full of faith, and the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Prochorus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmenas, and Nicholas, a convert from Antioch. And they had them stand before the apostles who prayed and laid their hands on them. So the word of God spread. The disciples in Jerusalem increased greatly in number and a large group of priests became obedient to the faith. And what's put on display here, and I want to acknowledge, we don't see the office of deacon explicitly expressed in this passage. But biblical scholars, many evangelical biblical scholars kind of agree that this passage seems to maybe be, be, be the beginning of the office 
of deacon because it's distinguished in the passage from that of the apostles and an apostolic ministry that would be handed down to pastors and teachers because they're teaching the apostolic message, those messages that would be recorded and would become the New Testament. And so it's, there's a delineation between service and role within the church and that the church was the ones that appointed these, these men to serve in this way. Now, some will say, well, it says right here, Chad, that it was only men that were selected, and so therefore the office of pastor, I mean, of deacon should be reserved only to men. I think that that argument isn't as strong as maybe some have made it to be, but certainly within this passage, we do see that it's only men that are selected here. But again, it doesn't explicitly say the office deacon, but they do this serving role of ministering to needs. So what's the, the takeaway for us? That these that were serving the church these widows that were in need, they serve with care. A deacon works to care for the vulnerable. A deacon works to care for the vulnerable. And that is to be the model that each of us follow in this life, to look, to identify the vulnerable, and to care for them, those that are truly, truly vulnerable among us. You know, I'll never forget the day that I got the phone call from a mom who was pregnant with twins, who was scared to death, who shared in the course of that conversation that she had had two previous abortions, but that there was something in her telling her that she was supposed to go through with this pregnancy and did I know anyone that could help her? It was one of those phone calls where just in the course of the week, it just stops you and everything else seems really small in comparison to this. There was a family in the church that I was pastoring at the time that, that was open, that was desirous of being able to do adoption. And so in that moment, I just could see things connecting. So I connected this family with this girl who just because of a reference from the, the reputation that the church had in the community, he had reached out and said, I, I don't know if you can help, but I, I need help. And so they began to step in and to care for her. And she was getting the medical care that she needed and all these things. And we get up to the moment of having the baby and, and two girls are born. Beautiful, healthy little girls. And in that moment, that mother who was a single mom, who the pregnancy was unplanned, all of these things take place, and she has these two girls, and in that moment of holding these babies, she makes a decision that she wants to keep these babies. She wants to, to mother them. She wants to, to care for them. And what was extraordinary and what puts on the character of Christ to care for the vulnerable, and please hear this, connect this to the dots of what's happening right now, that when this mother determined that she wanted to care for these two girls, her needs went through the roof. Her needs in that moment were greater than her needs while she was carrying the babies. Sure, she needed prenatal care. She needed that care during the pregnancy, but now she had mouths to feed and diapers to change and all of these things like that were just really gonna overwhelm her, no doubt. But in that moment, this couple that had stepped in to adopt the girls because she had said that she didn't want to keep them, but then changed her mind. Instead of saying, well, then we're done with you, they leaned in and they said, we're gonna do everything we can to walk with you in this moment. And the church of Jesus Christ 
wrapped around this mom and began to do all of the things that you would hope that would be done for you if you were welcoming a child into the world. For you, when you throw a baby shower, for, for you, when you want to see the best for your child or grandchild or niece or nephew or your friend's child, all of those things were being done and more walking with this mom. And she wasn't even a believer yet. But it was through the love of Christ, demonstrated by the body of Christ, as people wrapped around a mom who was in an unplanned pregnancy situation and loved her daughters and loved her and ministered the gospel. Didn't just bark the gospel at her, didn't just scream the gospel at her, but loved her with the gospel that she came into a living, dynamic relationship with Jesus Christ. Was it easy? No. Is it easy today? No. It's not easy. But it was unbelievably holy to watch what God was doing through his bride when his people committed themselves to caring for the vulnerable. That's what we're called to do. And in this moment where we rejoice over the protection afforded, the personhood acknowledged in our own state of the unborn, we now, as the church of Jesus Christ, have a long walk of obedience and of care and compassion for those that are most vulnerable among us. So can we rejoice in this moment? Yes, but not in a way that then says, well, I guess that's over. What else can we move on to? What's another issue? What's a... No, 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 the work is amplified now. There will be more need, more pregnancies where children are gonna be born that need care and direction. And so there's much to be done as we look out onto the horizon. And I'm thankful for the leadership of different ministries that are even in our community. There will be many opportunities, but I believe that we have to demonstrate now as the body of Christ that we've not just been saying something for 50 years that now the check says insufficient funds for. But when people say, now prove all that you said, we prove it with incredible resilience, just as you have been, so many of you have been for years, to continue in that way of caring for the vulnerable among us. Just as we care for, we see the care demonstrated for widows here, so we care for mothers and fathers in unplanned pregnancies that are looking at how difficult it's going to be, and we say, we will walk with you. Serve with character serve with care, and then finally serve with charity. And I want you to turn over to Romans chapter 16, and I want you to see this sister named Phoebe. In chapter 16, verse 1 and 2, Paul writes, I commend to you our sister Phoebe, who is a servant, and that's the word diakonos, or uh, uh, being a deacon, of the church of Centria. So you should welcome her in the Lord in a manner worthy of the saints and assist her in whatever matter she may require your help. For she indeed, for indeed, she has been a benefactor of many and of me also. What's Paul saying there? He's saying that this deaconess in the life of the church has served with great charity. She has given to those in need. Paul identifies himself as one who was in need financially, need of provision, need of traveling supplies, maybe need of parchment or ink to write with. We don't know exactly the nature of his needs, 
But he has communicated again and again and again. He's known what it was to have plenty, and he's known what it was to have very little. But the Lord, the Lord supplied all that he needed, and he did it through sisters like Phoebe. And so this exemplar sister, this woman in the life of the church who had material wealth, she did not see it just as a means toward personal enjoyment of something to just say, well, good for me. But instead, she then looked out on the body of Christ and to the work of making disciples of all nations. And she said, I want to give in a generous way, so much so that she was herself willing to enter into the missional work. And what's significant about this is that this commendation is most likely because Phoebe herself was the one who was carrying the letter called Romans to the church in Rome. That, that she herself was the one that was bringing it in order for it to be read to the saints that were there. That's why he commends her. That's why he says you can accept her. That's why he wants her to be taken care of. He wants her to be honored and esteemed in the life of the church. And this has, you know, you, it, when we look back and we say, well, there was no honor, no regard given to females in the Bible, false. Paul elevates this dear sister in Christ. And he says that she is worthy of the saints to assist her in whatever matter she may require of you. And he thanks her by saying she has indeed been a benefactor of many and me also. You see, a deacon's wealth is invested in getting the word to the ends of the earth. That's what Phoebe puts on display. She, at great expense to herself, has taken a long journey from wherever she was at Centria to be able to get the gospel and to bring the word of the Lord to those who were in need of it. And aren't you glad she did? You and I now have this treasure of a book called, a letter called Romans that carries all of these theological truths that you and I benefit from today because this sister in Christ was faithful to bring it and to have it read. It became treasured as scripture as it is and then began, began to be circulated and to be codified and brought into the canon of God's word so that now, I'm reading it, to, reading it to you today. So families thrive when they serve like a deacon, when they serve with the character of Christ and Christ is seen in us. They thrive when they serve with care, working to care for the vulnerable. But who does that really point to? It points to Jesus Christ, who constantly in the gospels was the one who went to the ones that no one else would go to. And serve with charity, giving to those in need. And can I tell you right now, that ultimately points to Jesus, maybe more than anything else, because you and I, our greatest need was the forgiveness of sins. And the only one who had that commodity to give, he came all the way down from heaven, sent by the Father to come and to live on this earth, to give his life on a cross in order to give you and me what we most needed, which was forgiveness, him dying in our place. And this is why the cross becomes the symbol of our faith, because it demonstrates and reminds us of what God has done for us, his care for our greatest need. And so therefore, in Christ, clothed with his character, emboldened to care for the vulnerable just as he was, and doing it with charity, giving this gospel, this treasure we have received at no cost. And at times, at great expense to ourselves. That's what we're called to. That's what it means to be a deacon. That's what it means to serve and to be the family that we're called to be. But none of that takes place until you're in the family. 
in the family of God. And there's only one way to be brought into that family, and that is through the embrace of Jesus bringing you in and saying, you're mine. You say, how do you experience that embrace? How do you become his? How do you enter into the family of God through faith in Jesus? You see, what Jesus did, he did for you. And as he did it as a gift to be received in faith. That gift is extended to you in this very moment. If you've never received the gift of his forgiveness, that embrace where he brings you in and he says, you're mine. This is that moment. Today is the day of salvation. It's not something you have to earn. It's not something you have to pay for. It's something that you receive by believing that it's true. So do you believe it? Do you believe that it's true? If you're here today and you say, yes, I believed that message for a long time. Does your life show the character of Christ? Does it show the care of Christ? Does it show, does it show that you belong to him? I encourage you, continue to walk in that calling that he's giving you to make disciples of all nations. But if you're here today and in this moment, you've never received that gift of salvation, I wanna encourage you to pray a prayer like this. God, I know that I am a sinner and that my greatest need is the forgiveness of my sins. And so God, would you please forgive me? I know that you gave Jesus to die on the cross for me. And I believe that he did and that he paid the price that I should have paid. So Lord, please forgive me of my sin through the blood of Jesus. Thank you for forgiving me. Please fill me with your Holy Spirit so that I I can be part of your family. Thank you for saving me. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. You see, it's not the words you pray, it's the heart that utters those words to Jesus that he sees and he hears. So today, if you're crying out to him for salvation, I want you to know this, he is faithful and just and will save you. He forgives those who ask for forgiveness. There's not a single person who has ever come to him and said, Lord, please forgive me. And he said, no, my forgiveness isn't for you. He forgives all those who come to him. And so please respond to him in grace today. If you have questions about what it means to follow Jesus, I'm gonna be out in the foyer after the service. Please come and ask and just say, I wanna know what it means to be in the family of God. I wanna know what it means to follow Jesus. Let me pray for you. Father, I thank you for this morning of worship, to be able to worship you from your word. God, to be able to have this pattern established in your word of what it means to serve. And so, Lord, from each one of these passages, may we collectively as a family be inspired by those who have walked before us, sisters like Phoebe, the brothers, God, like Stephen that were listed in Acts chapter 6, and even a young brother like Timothy, God, who was leading in your church. May each one of them serve, God, as an example that we follow so that your family is built up in every way into Christ who alone is the head. It's in his name that we pray, amen.